You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. Hello, everyone. My name is Sandhya Pahuja, and I am the Director of the Institute for International Law and the Humanities. And I'd like to begin by acknowledging that I'm speaking to you from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders and their laws. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the first session of this year's newly named The Academic Skills Circle, which I hope you all notice has the acronym TASK. <laughs> so we've now expanded the organisers of our skills circle to include not only Professor Ben Golder from the UNSW uh, Critique Network, but also our dear friend, Dr. Kathleen Birrell, who has sadly left Melbourne Law School to happily take up a position at La Trobe Law School and um, is here as the co-convener of the task, but also as part of the La Trobe Law and Humanities Network. And for those of you who haven't come to a skills circle before, it's modelled on the idea of a knitting circle, the idea of which is not to give a seminar, but for people with different levels of experience to sit together in a room and talk about, in our case, the thing that we're talking about and to share reflections. Because what that does in the knitting circle, if my mum's knitting circle is anything to go by, the older people can provide, you know, technical guidance and the younger people provide good ideas and you know, freshness. And so it's a really nice way to think about how the skill circle both uh, helps us all to develop our skills, but also helps people to learn how to mentor others. Because that idea of observing how people do things is useful at any stage of your career. So even though the skill circle is meant to be a kind of circular idea of sharing, we have adopted the model of inviting a featured guest to get the conversation going and our featured guest today in um, our topic of editing a collection is Dr Shane Chalmers who is a senior lecturer at Adelaide Law School and we have asked Shane to start the conversation for us today because Shane is the most extraordinary editor of collections I have ever met he and I co-edited the Rutledge Handbook on International Law and the Humanities recently and Honestly, all of the previous edited collections I've done up until that moment look like complete bowls of broken jelly in comparison to the beauty of how Shane managed to run the um, Rutledge Handbook, not only as a question of administration, but intellectually as well. And so I have learned so much from Shane that I'm now using Shane's model for everything else that I do. So Shane... Um, I won't say more about your research, but I encourage people to go and look at your profile because the substance of your research, leaving aside your masterful skill of editing collections, is actually fantastic. Uh, so please go and look at Shane's um, research profile as well. But can I hand it to you for to lead us in our discussion for about 10, 12 minutes, Shane, and then we'll open the floor to anybody who wants to talk about their experiences and questions and so on. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sanjay, and thank you for such a generous uh, introduction and generous invitation to be part of this renowned skills circle, which I've come to a few of them. So I just want to 
begin by acknowledging that I'm speaking to you from the land of the Ghana people, the unceded land of the Ghana people in South Australia, and to acknowledge their elders past and present, and to acknowledge any other Indigenous people who are amongst us today. I wanted to, so what I want to do today is talk a little bit about the process of editing this collection with Sundia. Um, so sort of go through the process uh, that we went through. And then I want to reflect a little bit about the role of the editor. Um, and there are different roles that the editor plays. My role was mostly as a project manager, and that's what I'll be speaking to. Uh, the other roles might be something of the, uh, the conjurer or the, the visionary. Um, and I think that was more Sandhya's role as the, the visionary, the conjurer of the actual project. Um, but the third way in which uh, we were editors, I think, were as, uh, as curators, which sort of comes at the end. And I'll talk about that as well. So these are the three hats you might wear as, a, as an editor. Uh, a little bit of context. So Sandhya talked a bit about this already, that the, uh, the origins of this book, this project was a birthday book for Illa. So it was Illa's 15th anniversary in 2020. And so the idea was that we would produce a edited collection that would bring together uh, friends of Illa, contributors to Illa, the, the broader Illa network uh, into this, this larger volume. Uh, to celebrate work that had been done, as well as work that was currently being done within this, this network. Uh, from there, it then turned into a, a handbook by the uh, commissioning editor at Routledge, who suggested that it become a handbook. Um, but that's an important starting point for this, because what made it coherent was not a workshop, not a, a writing project as such, it was a community. It was a community of scholars that really gave the shape to this project as the starting point. So we didn't have to do a lot of work thinking about what would make it as a sort of coherent whole. It was the people who, and mostly the, the, well, the Illa network that made it coherent. So let me just share my screen because I want to take you through a few of these slides just to go through the process here. So the conception of this began uh, back in November 2019, and there's a, this is without uh, Sanjay's uh, permission, I've got a little snapshot. This is from our first meeting when Sandy and I met, sort of jotting down uh, our notes, what we'd be doing. Um, basically, as you can see, we're setting out, trying to imagine timeline, trying to imagine uh, our roles, which was very important, what each of us would be doing, and trying to imagine as well the, the timeline for this, uh, for this project. Uh, I think it was actually pretty accurate, as it turns out. But as you'll see, it's sort of, you know, it's a work in progress. But you, what I really want to show this for is just you go from one page of brief, brief notes into sort of a you know, fully fledged thing. It took from that first meeting in November 2019, it took about five months to conceive the book. So in those five months, we came up with the concept for it. We had to write to the authors, get the author commitments and come up with a table of contents. Um, all of that, those five months really so that we could put together a proposal to the publisher. In this case, it was for Outledge, uh, which we did in May 2019. So you can see here the, in this, so the first stage was just coming up with trying to nail down the commitment of authors so that you can put this into the proposal. You then send the proposal off to Outledge. We got the reviewer reports back pretty quickly. So it was about a one month turnaround to get the re reviewer reports. Um, and we had the contract with Routledge by about uh, 29th of August, 2019. So this was all moving pretty quickly. But importantly, so we weren't, in the meantime, we were doing a whole bunch of other things. We weren't just waiting for the contract to come up so that we could proceed with the project. We were working on the basis that we would get a contract or that we would be able to submit to a different publisher and get a contract with somebody, if you like. So 
working on the basis that this would be um, a publishable project and not waiting for the sign-off um, by the publisher. So what we were doing in the meantime, well, while we were liaising with Routledge, was writing to the authors, and there are about 40 authors in this book, writing to them to pester them for their first drafts. And we gave them until the 1st of November, 2019. Uh, I think that was an extended deadline. We extended a couple of times, um, but that was ultimately the deadline we sort of set upon. The actual first drafts came in, or first draft came in on the 30th of October, so a day before the deadline, and this was one of our colleagues here with us today, Ben Golder, was the, uh, the prompt. <laughs> So he got his in beautifully. Um, the last one to come in was about six months after that. I won't name who that was. And then probably another six months after that was the really last one, which was our chapter, our introduction. But that's a different story. This is really trying to get the contributors to, uh, to get their papers in. So this is just giving a sense of the timeline there. I'll talk more about the process of how you want to keep momentum and keep the pressure on to make sure that the drafts come in. But this is just a sense of, uh, uh, of the process. So the next step after you've got all the first drafts from your contributors was to prepare, was to basically undertake a review of those drafts and a copy edit by Sandhya and myself. So this was not the in-house copy edit that Routledge would do. This was just as editors, what we'd be doing. So we went through, I'll show you in a moment, went through about two reviews, um, sometimes only one review plus a copy edit um, before we could prepare the whole manuscript as a package that we could send off to Routledge. And we got to that point by the 26th of September, 2020, when we had the whole sort of manuscript as a package, which we could send off. We then, uh, at that point, we received uh, the copy edited manuscript from Routledge relatively quickly after that. But by, you've got, by the time you get to that point, it is pretty well underway. So you got to prepare an index as well at the same time. You got to then get the proofs. You got to complete, sort of review the, the proofs and go to the finish line. But what I want to really focus on is the middle section, the, the parts, the process of working with the collaborators, working with your contributors to the book, because that's where you really need the, the project management skills. It's not so much at the, the beginning, not so much at the end, um, but really that, that really thick middle section. Um, I should say in this timeline, for us, it was about 18 months from that first meeting to publication. That's pretty quick, but it still is, as you can see, a major project that you're undertaking, you know, a year and a half for this sort of thing. So you've got to imagine that what you're undertaking when you do an edit collection is a really multi-year project, which could become many, many years. So this is a screenshot of the files that we were keeping as you can see, we were managing a huge number of files. And I think the, the first thing that you have to keep in mind is how you, you sort of keep track of all these files, how you manage these files, how you keep it organized. This is just giving a sense of the layering that we had. This is one way in which we organize the filing system. The other thing I think, I won't linger on this one. The other thing, most important thing is not just managing the files, but managing the contributors. So I think this is much harder than keeping track of the files. You know, you can keep track of the files fairly easily, but the contributors are much, much more difficult to manage. So this on the screen that you can see at the moment was our master document. This gave the sort of overview of the entire process. Um, so when I would look at this or Sandhya would look at this, you could get a sense of where everything was at a certain moment in time um, with all the different contributors. So the, the names on the left are the contributors of the chapters, 
Uh, we had a reminder column. So this was when we knew, just to make a note for ourselves, when we had to send a reminder to them, a prompt, whether that was to send us their first draft or to send us uh, their second draft or to send us their final copy. So that would just be notes to ourselves. We were keeping track of uh, whether we had received the drafts or not. Um, we would have notes in there for the time we wanted to receive that draft, whether we had received it yet, whether we would ask, um, you know, sent an email to them to ask for it again. Uh, we had notes on who had reviewed it or if we had reviewed their draft, whether it had been copy edited. And Caitlin, who's with us now, was one of the wonderful copy editors who would be working simultaneously with these drafts. Uh, and then we'd return it to the author and give the author a certain amount of time to, to review the, um, the copy edit, to review our comments as editors um, before they would send it back to us. A couple of them needed a second review if there were substantial changes that had been made, um, but not so many. And then, of course, keeping track of the final copies, making sure that we knew uh, whether the final copies had come in or not, along with things like abstracts and bios, addresses, proofs, and so on. So all this to say is that this document allowed us to make sure that nothing went missing, to ensure that you, and a lot of, like for me as a junior scholar, it was partly uh, ensuring that you don't get embarrassed, right? So not losing someone in the process, not having emailed them for six months, making sure that you knew that you'd emailed them, kept them up to date with the process. Also making sure as a, you know, early career scholar that I wasn't losing copies of drafts. Somebody had sent me their draft, I hadn't filed it, it was lost in an email chain. And then I would write to them later and say, where's your draft? And they'd write to me and say, well, I sent it to you, you know, six months ago. So to avoid that scenario, luckily that didn't play out, but to avoid that kind of scenario, I was wanting to have something that would make sure that I didn't have senior people telling me that sent me a draft, I didn't know where it was. So this for me and Sunday, I think was a really important tool to just manage the project as a single thing that you could know where everything is, where everything's happening. Uh, but it's only really as good as how you use it. You know, as like with every tool, you have to actually use the tool. So part of the lesson here was how you keep momentum as well. So you've got this tool to help you keep momentum, but you still have to keep that momentum going. And for me, this meant ensuring that I was always writing to the contributors relatively regularly, at least just to update them, to let them know how the project was tracking, not having long periods of silence. Part of this was keeping pressure, I think, as well, making sure, you know, every, every academic has a long list of writing projects. And the idea as an editor is you want your project to be at the top of that list, in a sense. You don't want it to sort of drop down and become the one writing project they never get to. So to do that, you, you have to both keep them informed, keep them excited, uh, but also, I think, put the pressure on in different ways. Um, how do you keep the pressure on? Uh, Partly by sending individual emails, I found, rather than group emails, rather than just emailing the whole group and saying your, your drafts are due, I would write individually to the authors and tell them personally their draft was due uh, because they're more likely to respond to that and not just ignore it. Maybe a few ethical lies as well to, to keep, keep the pressure on. Things like, I don't know if it is ethical, but I hope it's ethical, to say things like... Um, your draft is one of the last drafts, um, we really want it, uh, yada, 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 when in fact, probably you've only got half of the drafts in, um, but, but you're sort of making some of the people feel that there's, they're the ones holding it up and no one wants to be the person who holds up the whole project. I'd like to hear if people think that is ethical, but uh, <laughs> it seemed to work. <laughs> the other thing was having multiple timelines running. So 
you know, this is probably fairly common. You've got a timeline with the publisher and you've got a promise to the publisher in your contract that you're going to deliver the manuscript at a certain time. You've got your own working timeline as editors uh, that you're trying to work through. And then you've got the timeline that you would give or we would give to the contributors. And these are not all necessarily the same. They're also the strategic. We also had a timeline that it was, we wanted to finish this by the birthday of Illa by uh, a certain time in 2020. So we didn't want to go too long with it because um, we wanted to be able to launch it for that birthday anniversary. So we had that pressure on us. But you do, of course, have the contract pressure. And also just the longer it goes, I think the longer it can just sort of spin out. Um, so trying to keep it short helps as well. So I'm happy to talk more about the process in a moment. I did want to say a little bit about the role um, of the editor and role, my role as an editor. So like I said at the beginning, I think that for me, there were three hats you would wear as an editor. One would be as a conjurer or a visionary. Now, this is sort of the invoking or the summoning. It happens right at the beginning. It's trying to imagine the project itself, you know, the idea of the project. And it's about generating the uh, collaboration, convincing others of this project. So convincing the contributing authors, convincing the publishers. And Sanjay is extraordinary with this. And I was really lucky to be able to work with her um, and to, to learn from this part of the process the sort of the envisioning, the imagining, and the making it happen when there's nothing except one page of notes in a, in a notebook. Um, so Sanja really uh, made, made it happen from the beginning. The second hat you wear would then be project manager, the day-to-day -day sort of stuff. And if I get remembered for anything as an academic, at least I'll be remembered maybe as a project manager. <laughs> this is just, like I said, keeping the, keeping the project on track. Um, keeping the pressure, keeping the momentum, making sure it actually gets finished. Uh, that's the middle part of it. And then the, the final part is as curator. And I think to be a curator, it's, it's like the practical visionary. You've got all your material and you've got your chapters in, but they're not fitting the original prospectus, not really fitting the original ideas necessarily that contributors promised you. So what do you then do with this material? And you've got to be able to combine a very practical approach to that with also a very uh, imaginative, creative approach to it. So you're trying to take the material, turn it into a coherent um, book at the end of the day. So they're the three hats. Um, and I'll mostly talk about my role as, as I have already as, the, um, as a project manager. One reason I think this project succeeded is because we were very complimentary, Sunday and myself, with this team. So having a conjurer or having visionary leader um, and a project manager was very complimentary skill set to have. And we were both also able to curate. So we both, I'm also able to bring intellectual creativity and curiosity to it. So I could help at the end as well with the, the curating of the project as well. Uh, so I think that uh, was my first lesson was how you choose your collaborators, making sure that you do have a complimentary team, a team that can bring these different skill sets. If you just have, you know, the conjurers, the visionaries, but no project managers, then maybe, uh, that would be difficult. And if you just have project managers, but no one who can conceive of the project to begin with and make it happen from the beginning, then you also uh, have difficulties, I think. The other thing, the final thing probably is to say that the other reason I think it worked well for me is the, um, the way in which it worked as an apprenticeship for me. So the way in which I could use it as a, uh, as a process of learning the craft of doing an edit collection. So, Again, the team in our case was a senior colleague, senior academic with uh, many edited collections under her belt and her name. 
um, and myself as a junior academic who hadn't done anything like this before. So for me, I was able to learn from a senior colleague with this experience who could oversee it, who could be a guide, um, and I could learn the craft through that apprenticeship approach, which would be different if you're several junior scholars and having to learn from each other as you go, in which case you'd really want to seek, I think, mentors, talk to Sunday, talk to Ben, talk to your, your mentors who have that experience. Um, I benefited from working with Sunday in this case. Um, or if you're all senior colleagues, then there might be issues, I don't know, around uh, who actually manages it, who does day-to-day -day work. Or I can imagine there'd be other challenges if everyone is, uh, is really senior as well. Um, so they're just a couple of reflections on, on collaborating on a project like this, uh, which I'd be happy to talk about as well, a little bit more, happy to talk about the process a bit more as well, but I'll leave it at that and open it up to, to everyone else. Thanks, Shane. I think uh, that was absolutely marvellous and I hope everybody got a bit of a fright at the level of organisation and meticulousness with which Shane uh, managed that because it was really extraordinary as a feat. I think you're underselling your intellectual uh, role in the project, Shane, although you did do all of the work of project management. That's absolutely true. A lot of the pleasure of the collection happened through the collaboration between us as we jointly learned from the contributions, which I think is one of the pleasures of the edited collection. And I guess just from a really, really practical perspective, if anyone's about to embark upon an edited collection, a few things that were really simple that you don't even mention because you took for granted were probably things like having a shared Dropbox that all of the editors share. And I don't know if we did this, Shane, but I'm certainly doing it now with Caitlin in relation to another project is to create a shared mailbox quite quickly that belongs to the collection because that's been really useful in the Oxford Handbook on International Law and Development because I don't know if your inboxes are anything like mine, but the more senior you get, the more you have an avalanche every morning of uh, emails that can never be tidied away. So having a dedicated mailbox for the collection right from the start is really really useful and then the other thing that I don't know if we did this Shane but this might have been Caitlin's idea in relation to so Caitlin Murphy is the associate editor of the Oxford Handbook of International Law and Development and she's here with us now but so you know one of the things that you have to do when you edit a collection is write the introduction, as you quite rightly say. And I think you would actually doing this is as we edited, as we read the chapters to write a short paragraph about each chapter as you go so that when it comes time to write the introduction, you've got responses to every chapter already written. And that was magnificent. So thank you for doing that, Shane. I learned something really, really good there. I, we didn't do it. I don't. I remember that as the lesson. Oh, so that's your that's your <laughs> fault, Caitlin. <laughs> that's been really useful though, because when we when it comes time to the for the introduction, when we've got forty five chapters in the Oxford Handbook, going back and rereading them again from the start would be really hard. So that's been a good thing. We'll open the floor more generally. Um, and uh, Max Hodenot, do you want to ask a question? Can you put your camera on if possible? While we're waiting for Max, would anybody else like to speak? Ben, please. Just jump in really quickly, Sandhya. Thank you. And thank you, Shane. And I should say that I'm 
uh, zooming in from the unceded lands of the Gadigal people in the inner west of Sydney and to pay my respect to their elders to acknowledge their sovereignty and their ongoing fights for self-determination and justice. I'll be really, really quick. Shane, that was amazing and eye-opening. I mean, I wish you had populated the reminder column on the Excel spreadsheet, but I'll follow up with you after this event for the actual version. Okay, just a comment and a quick question. The comment is one thing that occurs to me in my experience of editing these um, collections is that it makes a difference to the type of editing experience that you have. If you're editing a book versus if you're editing a special issue of a journal, and that might be one kind of distinction that people might want to reflect upon, I found the experience of editing special issues for journals to actually be much less pleasurable as an editor because you kind of cede quite a bit of control to the journal, the editorial body of the collective will have their own views about how things are run and they've got their own processes. And then you're kind of in the hands of your reviewers who sometimes, in my experience, you don't even get to choose as a special issue editor for a journal. So depending on the journal, they can cede more or less sovereignty to you as a special issue editor. Whereas if you're editing a book, in most cases, the kind of the uh, proposal is peer reviewed, but the ultimate editorial say lies with you, which means that you've got a lot more skin in the game. You've got a lot more invested relationally, reputationally, um, intellectually in the project. And I found that that meant that when I was doing that kind of work, I really had to bring my A game as an editor. Like it really mattered. I felt like I was editing there, whereas in editing a special issue, I was much more accepting what Sandy said about perhaps underplaying the intellectual contribution of the project manager, I felt much more like a project manager ticking things along when I was working under the auspices of a journal. When it's your book and when it's a book with 40 people, you're you're doing a lot more editing. So that, that's just a comment. I guess one quick question, which you can roll into answering the other questions if you like. I have always found the biggest challenge of editing these kinds of collections is writing that introduction at the end. I think some of the it's some of the worst writing that I have ever <laughs> ever done because you get to the end of it and all that work of conception, you know, conceptualizing and conjuring and project managing, you find you finally get over the the finish line, and then you don't have a lot to say besides collating, you know, helpfully. Thank you, Caitlin. You know the the um, paragraph chapter summaries of all the chapters. I found writing those introductions to be really, really, really exhausting. So, any tips that you or Sanja had about that would be great. Shall we? Shall we see what? Uh, a few other people want to say and then we can make it into a bit of a conversation and then Shane I'll give you uh, another space because one we don't we don't want to make it too much of a Q&A to you Shane but I'm sure you have helpful reflections there I mean just to comment on the question of introduction Ben that was the pleasure of working with Shane like I think if you were doing this alone doing that curation and reflection on what has been curated would be really difficult so the conversation between two scholars around the exhibition is so much nicer than doing it alone I'm not sure if Max is able to speak or not no all right Jade why don't you go ahead Okay, thank you so much, Sandra, and just a big thank you, Shane. This is um, so helpful. I really like how you conceptualise the sort of three or the tripartite roles of the editor. That's really clear. And just thank you so much for sharing your actual filing name conventions on the spreadsheet. I think that's I appreciate that so much. It's just so nice to see um, 
real practical examples of how people manage their work. That's really valuable. I had just two quick questions. I was wondering about the first stage of reaching out to authors, how much you prescribe um, what you would like them to write on. Do you sort of propose a topic or do you leave it open for them? And then I also wanted to ask, and this is really open to anyone, about holding a workshop during the process where you sort of bring the authors together to discuss you know, and, and sort of perhaps give each other feedback on their drafts. Just if anyone's done that, what what are the benefits and maybe what sort of are the challenges of, of doing that? Thank you very much. Angela, do you want to um, say your piece and then we'll hear from people on the questions that have been raised already? Sure. Thank you, Shane. That was really helpful. Um, I... Uh, it was interesting to me to learn that they peer review a proposal. I assume that's what you meant by reviewers' reports. So that was news to me um, that it goes beyond, you know, the editor or the series editor for the collection. And I also wanted to ask about, you know, whether whether people were brought together or brought whether their work was brought into conversation with each other in any way, you know, were any of the drafts shared between the authors or, or were they all kept quite separate? And my second question is that I was so impressed that it was basically 10 months from a first meeting to a draft manuscript. I mean, that seemed incredibly fast and just your comments about momentum, like do you think that there's sort of that there's an emotional role of that momentum that really keeps everyone really committed to the timeline um, to be able to produce something of that volume in that timeline. Definitely. Does anybody want to speak to that question of prescription, how prescriptive are we, and also the workshop question, which I think both Angela and Jade have raised, and also the the timeline I mean Angela just to editorialize that timeline is really unusual and it was partly the magic of Shane but it was partly the pressure of Illa the Illa anniversary so you I'm hopeless if I haven't got an external deadline and the fact that we wanted to have an anniversary celebration at which we could launch the book kept us going but the but Shane your emails to people were so wonderful like the level of care and tact and but persistence <laughs> do you want to say something now and then Ben wants to say something I think about prescriptiveness and then we'll take the go to the other hands yeah just I would actually like there are a couple of contributors here the, the real question is why they respond the way they do um, which because it's totally you know, a relationship um, but I, I think not having that silence, like some projects that I've been on uh, have been a lot of silence you don't know, so you let it slip down your your, uh, your list of things to do. But I would just say, in answer to a couple of the other things, the so this was an unusual project as well in that it was, this is answer to Jade, that uh, there were no workshops, there were no, what was driving it was the community. So we didn't um, have a lot of the other things that I think Ben will talk to when you're doing a project that is maybe driven by uh, by other objectives. So our objective was to bring a community together, bring a body of workshop, a body of scholarship together that was held together by this, by these people um, within the broader ILA network. So that meant it was a very different beginning point for us. 
Um, that also meant we weren't putting the chapters in conversation with each other. That would be interesting, but we weren't sharing the drafts with each with the different authors. Uh, we were sort of collecting them as um, exemplary models and as uh, um, as reflections and so on. So it was a very different project in that sense. And I think Ben will talk about and Sandhya could talk about projects that look very differently as far as an ed collection goes. Thanks, Shane. Just really, really quickly on that question of kind of prescriptiveness, but just before I come to it on Jade's question about kind of connecting an edited collection to a workshop, I mean, I think, again, qualitatively, I think in terms of the editorial work that arises out of that, you end up having a different kind of pleasure where you collectivize a lot of that editorial work to the workshop itself. And a lot of the peer, there's a kind of really lovely connectedness, which is obviously another thing you need to think about in putting together an edited collection. Publishers are always wondering, if, you know, is this coherent? Is this going to tell a singular story or is it just a bunch of your friends in a room? But having your friends in a room mean that they can kind of, you know, that hive editorial mind I think is really uh, a really powerful force. And it, it means that the the actual work of the editor or editors can be a little different. Um, just on that question of prescriptiveness, to come back to Jade's great question, I think I'll just share an, an example. One of my worst experiences editing a book, I won't tell you the title of the book, um, but I had, I was quite junior and I had, I'd, I didn't like to adopt Shane's kind of personas of the kind of conjurer. I hadn't conjured a strong enough sense of what I wanted the book to do but I was clear that I wanted particular people and some of these particular people were eminent and, and great scholars in the field. And there was I, a kind of junior person, sending these begging emails and I made the mistake of actually just saying, send me anything on X, you know. Um, and I was really broad because I wanted to entice them in and they thought, great, so they sent me stuff. But when it came to the curation um, of, of the kind of collection into a whole, that made it really hard. So I've always thought this conjuring but conjuring, but then also being really prescriptive, I think is actually helpful. So I want to I want to put a kind of plea out for prescriptiveness, high levels of prescriptiveness. Shane Chalmers, I want to invite you to write a chapter on X or Y. Um, I've got a colleague again; she's she'll be nameless at the Faculty of Law and Justice at UNSW who does a lot of this kind of work, and she will invite um, quite eminent senior judges. Um, and she will tell them exactly what she wants them to write about, you know, writes to the Chief Justice of whatever jurisdiction, I want a chapter from you on this. And most of the time she gets away. But then if she doesn't, it can at least be a dialogue and the person can write back and say, well, I don't I don't want to do a chapter on that, but I could do something on X, Y, and Z. And it re- that would really have got around my problem of just saying, I want you, whatever you say to me, um, which was a big mistake for me. Thanks, Ben. Let's uh, take some of the hands and then I'm conscious that Kathleen's co-convening, but she's kindly agreed to wait until we've heard from Anna and Dinesha. So, Anna, do you want to say, uh, speak now? Uh, yes, I'd love to. And sorry, my internet was patchy, so I ho- hope these questions haven't been asked while I dropped out. But thank you, as always, for an excellent presentation. Uh, my two questions are about if you could talk us through to what extent audience influenced your decision-making at the beginning and throughout, like how you were thinking about the audience for this book and how that related to some of your decisions. And also, is there anything that you would do differently if you were doing this again? Dinesha, do you want to add to that? Thanks, Andrea. Uh, thanks to... <laughs> is that your dog barking? Neighbor's dog, actually. For those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, joining from Colombo, Sri Lanka. I was 
part of Melbourne Law School for two years and I'm back uh, to Sri Lanka now where the economy is falling apart. So anyway, so this has been very helpful to listen into. I've uh, made a lot of notes. Uh, just for your background, I'm currently involved as editor in two projects, one at its tail end, the other probably in the, the middle of it. So just want to uh, endorse the idea of workshopping chapters. We found that to be very helpful in both projects. And it also helped in developing uh, what I thought was a thicker introduction. And the authors get to understand each other and sort of adapt to what the others are saying, take on board what the others are saying. And in this second project, which is still halfway, the case studies are speaking to what we call the thematics. So it's very much a project that is very closely, um, the, the, the subunits are speaking to each other. So I think workshops are a great idea going forward. But my question is the following. So in both book projects, because of uh, the jurisdiction that I study and the questions I'm interested in, we've gone out of our way to involve people who can speak on understudied jurisdictions. And that has often meant that we are working with younger colleagues who have not had much experience in writing. We are also working with academic practitioners or in certain cases practitioners. So then we are dealing with a, a range of academic standards and intellectual approaches. So if anyone has, and I mean, I'm committed to that and I think that's a hugely important way of doing this kind of work. But if anyone has any tips on how that can be managed well, I would be very interested. Thank you. And sorry, one other point, I might have to drop off when our power supply is disrupted, so please excuse me and thank you so much. Thanks, Benesha. We'll come, maybe we'll say something about your last question immediately after Kathleen in case we lose you. Hi, everyone. Um, Thanks so much, Shane, for uh, for sharing all of this. Um, it's been really interesting to listen to and to hear it from the other side, having contributed to this collection. I just wanted to make a couple of comments. One on uh, workshopping. I have um, experienced that um, recently with being a contributor to edited collections. And I think that um, in my experience, I mean, depending on how thematically connected the contributions are, I think that it really goes to that question of momentum and keeping authors engaged and keeping their contribution at the top of their to-do list. And in my experience, even with a highly organised collection recently, another one that I was involved with, I didn't really gain an awful lot from the workshopping experience in terms of my own, the substance of my own contribution, but it was a part of um, that feeling of collectivity and community, I suppose, in um, amongst the authors. And so I think it was import- important in, um, in keeping momentum. But I just had another couple of questions, if I may, that um, relate to something that was just mentioned around support or additional editorial support for emerging or junior scholars. And this is something that's been part of the editorial process of a journal that I'm involved with and um, a really strong part of it. And I wondered whether that was something that you thought about and provided as you were going along. And also another question around curation. Um, You put that very diplomatically, um, but I wondered if there were contributions that did not really address the themes, were too long, were too late. Did some authors fall away or you were able to 
curate them all together in the end <laughs> without uh, too much incident. So a few different comments and questions. Thanks. Shane, will you uh, take the floor for a few minutes and comment on some yeah, things yeah, if you'd like to? A couple of responses, um, beginning with the curation question, so beginning at the end with Kathleen's. So we had, I, I like, and I'm probably more intuitively along the line of Ben with um, with prescription, but for this project, it was more the letter thousand flowers bloom, the sort of Hillary Charlesworth approach. And what that meant is that no, nothing could really go wrong in a sense of nothing wouldn't fit because we didn't ever say what would fit to people. So, you know, it's a, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but because we had Sandhya at the helm uh, who was able to, um, you know, so it wasn't, it was a group of scholars who we could depend on, I think, who were going to contribute to this book. Uh, it wasn't strangers. It wasn't uh, just a uh, call for papers and we didn't know who was contributing. Uh, it was, uh, I think, a carefully selected group. And so we did hope that and trust that it would come together. And, I, and it did. Uh, we didn't have any troubles. The curating then was a, I'm trying to do the magic trick. I don't know if it worked, but it was trying to wrap it up, you know, like a thesis process where you get to the end of the thesis and you have to tell the story of why it all fits together. And so that's a, a skill that you develop where you have to try and um, say why it's coherent. I and mean, we came up with a story for why it was coherent and we wrapped it up in a particular way. And if you let a thousand flowers bloom, that's going to be much more difficult to do because you have to, you know, come up with a creative way to tend that garden. But if you set out with a much more prescriptive approach, it will be much easier in the curation end, I think. So you make your job much easier, I think, by being prescriptive. And what, just one other thing on the audience question. So audience was really, really important uh, for us, especially once it became a handbook, because uh, it's a particular genre. Our audience, we were thinking would be uh, early career researchers, maybe students, doctoral students, maybe international law students who hadn't yet seen what is possible within international law. This would be a resource for those early researchers to encounter international law in different ways. Um, I think we told the contributors that this was the purpose, but <laughs> can't be sure. Um, so that, that meant, so with that audience in mind, it meant shorter chapters, it meant chapters that would be more useful for that kind of audience. And when you're doing a handbook that's a genre, uh, we had trouble there because this wasn't a recognizable handbook in any traditional sense. So we had to re-describe what a handbook was in order to make this fit <laughs> that audience. So we had to create an audience as well, in a sense, at the end. But yeah, audience was really important. Thanks. Um, can I just say something briefly about Dinesh's question and others picked up on the question of uh, younger or more junior scholars and also non-English speaking scholars. So we didn't really have that issue in the Rutledge handbook because it was a different kind of constituency who was writing. But in the handbook that uh, Kate Blinn is working with us on, um, the Oxford Handbook of International Law and Development, it's been absolutely central to the project to incorporate voices from the global south and a lot of people writing in English as a second language, but there's no point for us writing a handbook on international law and development that's more people based in the north telling people based in the south what to do. And so that process has taken much, much longer. And what we did amongst the three editors, which are the four editors, the three of us who are senior academics and Caitlin, but between the three senior people, Louisa Slava, Ruth Buchanan and myself, is that we have taken much more intervention, a much more interventionist approach or a caring approach, let's say, in relation to each of the chapters. So we've divided the chapters up between the three of us and we've built in a multiple 
point review timeline. So this is a handbook that's that's taking, I don't know, Caitlin, how long? Four years, three years, um, three and a half years. And we know, we knew from the start that some chapters would need multiple go-overs by the editors. And that is really different than this, where we were essentially writing to quite an established constituency with a relatively open brief and a short timeline for uh, reasons of illa anniversary. So it's, I think it's really important if you're trying to make an intervention into a field that you attend to the question of North-South and try to make time to do it a bit more slowly because there's no way of doing that, that version quickly. And I think managing that right from the beginning is really important. So to say explicitly to the publisher, this is the ambition and this is why it's going to look like this and this is why it's going to take so long because otherwise other imperatives can impose. So I guess one of the things that's important to Ben and Kathleen and me about these skills circles conversations is not only the question of skill but the secret the secret of the whole enterprise is ethos rather than skills. And so none of this is driven by a, a wish to produce outputs or be programmatic. It's driven by the ethos of scholarship and the idea of building a scholarly community. So the workshop is usually the fun part. And in the Cold War project that I was involved in and still am involved in, the Cold War never goes away and now seems to be back. But anyway, um, those workshops were very open in the first instance. So we we got together with absolutely no prescription other than talk about the Cold War in relation, like think about your thing in relation to the Cold War. And so the gestation of that book was quite a few more years because we met several times in different places with a huge band of collaborators and that's generated its own collaborations and pleasures and produced a much more, a much less well-organised edited collection in processual terms but a very satisfying intellectual project. So that was really messy because you had three very busy senior academics trying to run it. <laughs> and so that I think was what Shane was getting at when you have a different set of problems that arise. But the pleasure of the face-to-face collaborations in that instance was what drove the production of the edited collection. Maria, do you want to step in there? Sure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this. Um, Shane, it's been fantastic to hear you and to thanks everybody for your contributions as well. It's been really interesting to listen to. I particularly like the way that you are talking about project management rather than admin, because I think that admin has a tendency to be sort of dismissed as something that is lesser, whereas, you know, maybe it is the language that's a problem, but I think that project managing captures the fact that it is a real endeavour that requires a lot of work, which admin should as well, but it just doesn't, unfortunately. Um, I wanted to pick up on something that Ben talked a little bit about, which is the distinction between doing a special issue and doing a special collection. And I've I've been part of conversations recently where um, there has been sort of like, of course, we should do a special issue because a special collection just tends to be dismissed. It becomes a book that nobody reads sitting on the shelf and you miss sort of the audience where such a special issue somehow has a bigger readership or has more prestige or has something else. And I was just wondering how others have dealt, whether you sort of 
come across this dilemma or whether there's any accuracy to it or and how you've responded to it. Thanks. Could I, could I just say one thing in response to that? So I've just begun teaching um, recently, moving into more teaching, and what I've found is how difficult it is to find good teaching materials and good is partly short, you know, like the 5,000, 6,000 word version of the article rather than the 15,000 word one, which students don't read. So I've found book chapters extremely useful as a result for teaching um, because they are the conciser and just better teaching material. So I guess my response would be that if you see an audience as maybe this would be useful for teaching, that the edited collection, the book could be really productive for that, whereas a special issue which spin out 15,000 word articles um, and maybe more complex articles would have a different audience. So maybe that's partly um, how you're seeing the audience. I'd say also, Maria, do what you want to do. Like the voices that say don't do this and do that, just do what you want to do. Uh, in the end, the trick is to be able to explain why you've done what you've done. And in my experience, having an an account that's thought through of the choices that you make is much more important than following some kind of abstract common sense so-called about what should be done and what shouldn't be. I think that if there are if there are conversations you want to intervene in that probably will respond better to journal articles that you know will disaggregate the piece into bits and stuff, then you might want to intervene through a special issue. But if there are things you want to do that should be a beautiful object like our handbook, then do it like that. I mean, one of the things I wish that we had done, Shane, actually speaking of a question that came up long ago, what would we do differently? I wish we'd asked Rutledge how much the book was going to cost before we started because it's much too expensive and one of the things that's beautiful about it is its completeness as a thing and that it works so well as a book. But it's so expensive that I don't think people other than libraries will really buy it. Um, and so if we were to do such a thing again, I think I'd probably try and find a publisher who would be willing to do it in paperback and had a good distribution network um, just because of then younger scholars will buy it for themselves maybe. I don't know. Were you shocked when we when we saw how much it was? Yes, but no. All of Routledge books is like I from my previous book with Routledge, even that, which is a tiny thing by comparison, is still outrageous. So yeah, yeah. finding like the US academic presses tend to be really affordable from what I've seen. So yeah, I think absolutely look for a press that uh, will make it available. Yeah. Or oh, yeah. So there's other yeah. Yeah, Sophia. I think we have time for one more comment. You can have the last word. Great, thank you. Um, I wondered if anyone had any advice or experience in collections that are interdisciplinary, and I mean even outside the humanities, so things like science, economics, um, how to bring those together and what the challenges might be. Thanks so much. Does anybody in the assembled crowd have anything to say about that? I think that might even be the topic of another skills circle because, well, we might have to because interdisciplinarity in general raises all sorts of other issues. Ben, do you have anything to say or Kathleen? I don't have anything specifically to say about that. It's a great question. And I suppose the best questions are ones that you can't answer adequately by. I mean, I think one of the one of the problems with interdisciplinary work generally, I think, um, 
in the university is that it's often invoked as a buzzword um, and worse, as a way, as an alibi for university managements to cut departments and schools um, because we're all interdisciplinary now. But so I think it gets thrown around in really pernicious ways and obscures the kinds of work and affect that go into living with integrity within a discipline or even once you've done that to be able to speak across disciplines. I think that's really, really hard. And so I'm just speaking generally here, not necessarily about a collection, but I think in order to do interdisciplinary work well, we need to have a real attention to methods and conversations and how we do things in law versus how we might do things in history and philosophy. And so in the in the context of a collection, I suppose, I'm just thinking this through, you would, in order for that to be composed well, I think, or for it to be read across disciplines or read broadly, it would need a hook and it need it'd need a really um important structuring and connecting device that allowed, you know, so that in some way um, it was evident that people were all speaking to the same thing or about the construction of the same thing um, and not in this kind of way where they were talking past each other. Um, so it would, it needs, I suppose, interdisciplinary connections would import a greater um, requirement for some kind of coherence or a hook or a connecting device, I suppose. I'd love to think more about this question I'd love to try and think. I mean, if people have got examples of good good precedents for these kinds of collections, whack them in the chat. But I'd love to keep thinking. Perhaps we should do another session on this one. And, the, I mean, the question is also one of collaborations, I fear, because I always find that the best way to think in a slightly different way than your training is to find someone to have a conversation with because departing from your training and embarking on something else by yourself is pretty impossible, I think. So that would be one of the main reasons for an interdisciplinary team of collaborators. <laughs> I just find that um, I, I think I think yeah. as well it would be important to think about, think more flexibly perhaps about form as well as rationale and thematic because it might, that kind of interdisciplinarity might invite the possibility of different kinds of forms and I'm thinking here even about if you've come across um, James Parker's work, um, which is very interdisciplinary but has produced outputs that um, would be considered non-traditional in legal scholarship. So, you know, that just occurs to me. Um, I've been involved in collaborations with humanities scholars, which has worked relatively seamlessly on a special issue that I co-edited, but also a conference which was strongly interdisciplinary, including um, science and engineering scholars. And I believe there was some attempt to create some kind of collection out of that, but I, I didn't participate. But you've prompted me to think about that and follow it up and see what happened. Interesting to think about. Thanks very much. Thank you. Well, I think we've come to an end. So hopefully people found the idea of thinking about how to work on an edited collection useful and also um, I'm conscious that we didn't give Caitlin Murphy the floor and she has so much experience doing this now working across two edited collections, one for the Cambridge Histories Project and one for the Oxford Handbook Project. But hopefully people will be able to also think for in their own practice how the, the way that we do things is integral to the communities that we form as scholars. So that's really one of the themes that runs across all of this. And I'd like to say thank you very much to Shane Chalmers for 
giving us such a fantastic way to start the conversation. And I think we should dub you the guru in edited collections, Shane, <laughs> because you're really very talented in uh, many respects, but also that one. So thank you very much and thanks for coming. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.